Thanks, Dave, for that uh, missionary exhortation. One thing that I think I appreciate about what you mentioned today is both short-term missions and uh, Chafer Seminary. Last week I mentioned uh, Chafer Seminary and the fact that uh, you know we need to get behind the support of Chafer Seminary, not just we, Preston City Bible Church, but other believers who are committed to a content-oriented doctrinal uh, training of pastors. We have to have a high standard to train pastors so that they can get into the Word uh, for themselves. And someone asked me after last week, said, well, how is Chafer Seminary supported? Because for most people, they think of the support of a local university or college as being handled through uh, tuition payments for the most part, although there are also endowments. Now, Chafer Seminary, through the gracious provision of, of uh, one individual that I know of, I don't know who the individual is, but someone anonymously endowed the seminary with about uh, three-quarter of a million dollars around seven or eight years ago, and the interest from which has allowed them to, to uh, support two full-time faculty positions, and that has been a remarkable advance for the school and really helped get them established. But the seminary only charges $50 a semester hour. To put that in perspective, Dallas Theological Seminary charges, I think, around $350 a semester hour. Now, at Dallas Seminary, they have always maintained the position that about 50% of their financial needs would come through tuition, the other 50% through private gifts and contributions. So if they're charging $350 a semester hour and Schaefer's charging $50 a semester hour, the vast majority of the financial resources for Schaefer Seminary comes through individual uh, gifts, unsolicited gifts and contributions. So that is how the, the seminary pays their bills, pays for uh, faculty and, of course, one of the things that does concern many of us is that they are located in one of the highest areas of the country for living expenses, and that is Southern California, which we would love to move the seminary somewhere else. We're just waiting for the Lord to give us 30 acres in Kansas City or Denver or Omaha or Oklahoma City or Tulsa or somewhere where there's a much lower standard of living where the school could be established. But for now... All indications are that the Lord wants Chafer Seminary to remain in Southern California. So we need to continue to pray for them and, and uh, their support. But also, uh, as uh, Dave mentioned, short-term missions, we will probably send another group over to Kiev next summer if the Lord allows. So some of you may be thinking about uh, using your vacation time next summer to uh, go over there as well. Before we begin our study this second hour, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any sins to God the Father, to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to study your word. We thank you that there have been so many trained men in the past 
who have dedicated their lives to be students of your word, who have from an early age taken the time, the discipline, made the sacrifice, paid the financial cost as well as many other costs in order to become masters of Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic to study your word and that it is upon their shoulders and on the results of their many years of labor that we come to understand your word more fully and more correctly. Father, we continue to pray for Chafer Seminary. We pray for Dr. Meisinger as he leads the seminary. We pray for Dr. Nimala, the other faculty members, that you would continue to guide and direct them. We pray for the student body there that as they begin this semester, that it might be a time where they come to a greater understanding and appreciation about the importance, the diligence, the priority of studying your word. We pray that you would continue to raise up young men who would be willing to go forward, to make that sacrifice, to recognize at an early age that they have the gift of pastor-teacher, that we know you will provide many with the gift of pastor-teacher for future generations, and we pray that they would have the courage and the conviction and the positive volition to take that step and to uh, become trained, academically trained in their gift, that they may pursue excellence in the study of your word. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be positive to it and respond to your word that we would be able to more consistently apply your word in our own spiritual lives as we advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying the faith rest drill as one of the important dynamics, if not the foundational dynamic, in the believer's advance as he walks by means of truth. We are in a study of Third John. This is our 14th lesson in Third John, and we are studying in verse 3 where John emphasizes and is grateful for the walk by means of truth. The Word of God is truth. Faith has as its object the Word of God and truth. We walk by faith and not by sight. So we're showing how we carry on that, that walk by means of faith. There are three stages, three steps in the faith rest drill. Step one, we claim a promise. That means we have to know a promise. There has to be the Word of God or a portion of the Word of God in our souls. And I've suggested Bible memory is one way to get those promises anchored in your soul. I am continuously reminded of things that occurred during the Vietnam War when there were POWs, when American POWs were in the Hanoi Hilton and other prisons that they cobbled together a lot of Scripture, those who were believers, and there were some who became believers during that time. And they stretched into the recesses of their memories from Sunday school classes and Bible memory programs, and they dredged up these Bible verses. And they would, one person would remember one portion, and someone else would remember another portion, and they worked out codes where they would tap on the wall, and they would be able to send messages, and many of those uh, POWs received tremendous comfort during that time because of promises that they had memorized and stored in their souls. They weren't just uh, being comforted because they understood abstract principles. They had uh, spiritual ammunition for their weapon. 
they had specific statements of Scripture. So we need to claim a promise. And step two, then we think through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in that promise. Why is the promise there? What is the foundation for the promise? What is it that God says that I should do, perhaps? Maybe there is a condition expressed that if I do such and so, then God will uh, fulfill uh, his side of the condition. So we think through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in the promise, and that may take just a few minutes, or it may be a drill we go over again and again and again, as we, depending on the situation, depending on the intensity of the adversity. And it may take days, if not weeks, before we become convinced of the truth of that particular verse. And then we reach the third stage where we have appropriated that as a doctrinal conclusion. We have concluded in our soul that it is true. It's not just a matter sometime of saying, yeah, I know it's true. We all know that. We, we read the verse. We know it's a promise of God. We know it's true. But in terms of our own experience, in terms of applying that as epinosis doctrine in our soul, we know that th- that does not always happen that easily. And so we go through this stage again and again. We begin by looking at Isaiah 40:31. Last week we looked at Isaiah 49. I mean Isaiah 41:10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. With thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And the issue here is on fear. And I stated that fear is a an emotion that is caused by the anticipation or awareness of danger. We feel that we are threatened in some way, our security, our, our health, our family, our friends, our loved ones, our job, our career, whatever it may be, we feel threatened. And fear can be related to almost any uh, area of life. I noted that it is a primary sin. Fear was the first mental attitude sin expressed in the Garden of Eden when God came to walk in the garden and Adam and Eshaw hid. They clothed themselves with fig leaves. And God said, why did you run and hide? Because they said, we, were, we heard the sound of you walking in the garden and we were afraid. So fear is a foundational mental attitude sin that then forms an entire webwork of sins. It's related, of course, to arrogance. Arrogance thinks that somehow we control life and we control our destiny. It's related to worry, to uh, anxiety. It may also uh, be related to uh, bitterness. And fear, as it goes on, can develop into anger. Anger can lead to uh, resentment. Resentment can lead to depression. So all of these form together this, this webwork of sin. All, everything comes from the core mental attitude of fear. So you have something that looks quite complex, such as this. Everything relates ultimately to this idea of fear. So I think that Isaiah 41.10 is a key verse to use. It's not simply reciting something like some sort of Hindu mantra that you just say it over and over and over again and eventually you 
You get into some stage of self-hypnosis where your mind has gone vacant, and now you don't worry about it because you've managed to uh, just recite something over and over again until until you're uh, mentally numb. That's not how it works. Fear has to be handled through the specific revelation of God. It is ha- it is an emotional sin that is dealt with through the rational content of Scripture. And we have to understand some things about fear. And last time I went over four basic mechanics of fear. The first thing we need to know about fear is that the more things you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear. Many people go around in life and they're scared to death. They're fearful of everything. They're, by the time they reach their, um, reach middle age, they're afraid to Invest. They're afraid not to invest. They're afraid to plan. They're afraid not to plan. They're afraid for their children. They're uh, afraid for their parents. They're afraid to make a decision. They're afraid not to make a decision. They have usually gone through periods of uh, adversity in their life where they have tried and failed and tried and failed, and they've been beaten down by the various events in life, and they have surrendered to fear in many, many things. And the dynamics are that if you are fearful about one thing today, then tomorrow you will be fearful about two things. The next day you're fearful about three or four things. And you get so wrapped up in your fears and your anxieties that that controls your decision-making. And when you're out of fellowship and you're operating on the sin nature, that is a position of weakness. And whenever we make a decision based on our sin nature, whenever we make a decision that comes from our area of weakness you are always going to be making bad decisions. You cannot produce good decisions and wise decisions when they come from a position of weakness. You have to operate from a position of strength, which means Bible doctrine under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Any other position is a position of of weakness. So the first mechanic was the more things you surrender to fear, the more things you fear. Secondly, the extent to which you surrender to fear the greater your capacity for fear. So if you just have a little fear and you give in to it and it enlarges its boundaries in your thinking, then you develop a greater and more increased capacity for fear. This leads to insecurity. It will destroy your capacity for life. It will destroy your capacity for love, happiness, and blessing. And there's no way you can have stability in life if you are operating on fear. The third mechanic is the greater your capacity for fear, then the more you increase the power of fear in your life. Fear begins to dominate. Fear controls your decision making. Fear limits your options until you get to the point where you can't really see other options because fear has so blinded you that you don't even see alternative courses of action. And then the fourth mechanic is that the more you increase the power of fear in your life, then the greater, of course, your failure to advance to spiritual maturity. You will uh, commit spiritual suicide, as it were, and destroy your own advance in the Christian life. So fear is antithetical to the spiritual life. It's antithetical to walking by means of the Spirit, and it, it can only be handled through Bible doctrine and advancing to uh, spiritual maturity. 
we went from that verse in Isaiah 41.10 to another verse that focuses on the solution to fear. It's not simply uh, not being afraid and recognizing that God is with us and He is the source of our strength. That is the doctrinal rationale that it's not my power but God's power. God is the one who strengthens us. He strengthens us with His integrity. So what we've seen in Isaiah 40.31, what we've seen in Isaiah 41.10 and the other passages we're examining this morning is that all of these are built on a on an essence of God rationale. An essence of God rationale. That means that what underlies these verses is a focus on the essence of God. Now, I think it's a mistake. It may work. It may strengthen us at times. But I think it's a mistake to leap to an abstract essence of God rationale. What we need to recognize is the power of the Scripture. And I say this again and again and again. Even the Lord Jesus Christ when he is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, handles the testing by quoting Scripture. He doesn't handle it by just saying, making abstract references to theological points. He quotes Scripture. Now, let's understand the essence of God's rationale. God is sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, he's love, and he's eternal life. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's immutable. He never changes. And he is veracity, absolute truth. Now, what we see in all of these verses is that these attributes, some of these attributes, never all of them, but some of them are appealed to by the verse in question. It relates to one of those attributes, so we'll help tie that together. We looked at Psalm 55, 22, which says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And we spent some time exegeting, partially exegeting that passage last time. So I want to review some of those elements today and add a number of things to it that we can understand more fully the rationale undergirding this verse, this promise. It is an imperative at the very beginning, a cow imperative, or it's a cow imperfect used as an imperative, Uh, from the Hebrew verb shalak. The Hebrew verb shalak means to cast or to throw something, to hurl something, to fling it. It's used 127 times in the Old Testament, and the word has the, the idea physically of taking something and heaving it or throwing it or hurling it in a particular direction. It came to be used figuratively of taking a problem and throwing it upon the Lord. It's an extremely vivid and dramatic term. And it means to take the problem that you have in life, whatever it is, and no problem is too small. Every now and then you run into somebody who thinks, well, this really isn't that big of a problem. I'm not going to bother God with it. And that is almost blasphemous because it, it, it reveals a very low view of God. God wants every detail in our life uh, cast upon him. So the uh, imperative here, the imperatival sense of the verb, is that we are to throw the burden on the Lord. We are to hurl it at Him. He is the one who wants to carry the burden, and He does not want that burden to be uh, on our shoulders. Now, this word burden is a very interesting word that has been uh, chosen by God the Holy Spirit, and it 
emphasizes a couple of different ideas. It's from the Hebrew noun Yahav, Y-E-H-A, and that final B is a soft bait. It's almost pronounced like a V, Yahav. And it has two ideas embedded in that word. The first is the idea of lot, a lot, like one would cast lots, or what is your lot in life, your situation, your uh, uh, what, what happens, a certain event in life. And the other idea that is present in Yahav is the idea of a gift or something that has been given to you. Now, when you look at an adversity in your life, and let's say that you come home one day and you discover that your uh, spouse has gone to the doctor that day and been diagnosed with a terminal disease, or let's say you show up at work and the boss calls you in and you're uh, given a uh, week's notice and you no longer have a job, or any number of other adverse situations which we face in life. And this word uh, comes to bear on that as a gift, as a gift. And as a gift, it emphasizes the provident, providential care of God. But there's something else that's interesting about this word, is that it is used in context in the apocryphal book Sirach, which was an intertestamental book. And in Sirach 34.1 and 42.9, the idea of, of this burden or lot is associated with sleeplessness. Now, I know that probably doesn't apply to anybody here, that you'd stay awake at night worrying about your health or worrying about your children's health or worrying about how you're going to make a bill payment next month or uh, anything like that, but that's the idea. See, the Word of God's very practical, and the idea here is something that keeps you awake at night, something that concerns you, something that weighs on you, agitates you mentally, something that has you uh, shaken up. So cast your... Uh, lot your burden on the Lord. It has that idea of something that befalls you and keeps you awake at night as you brood about it, as you worry about it. But it also has this other idea of a gift. And the idea is that of the gift is that God in His providence controls history and He is in, controls, in control of the details of our life. As such, every detail that comes into our life, whether good or bad, is under the providential care of God. He is the one who is in charge of history, and he is the one who has told us that he is working in the life of every single believer to bring us to maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his omniscience, he knows each of us inside and out. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our strengths. He knows all of our hopes, all of our dreams, whether we rise up or whether we sit down. God knows everything there is to know about us, and he still loves us with an infinite and unfathomable amount of love. And that is because that love is not based on who we are, but on who he is. But because he knows your weaknesses, he knows every little weakness, he knows all of those little sins, the private sins, every single area where we fail all the time, God also knows exactly what tests he needs to bring into each of our lives. So he tailor makes every test just for you. It comes packaged like a Christmas present with your name on it, all wrapped up. And in, in, uh, sometimes it's wrapped up in glittering paper, and we think it's a good thing, and it turns out not to be a good thing. 
sort of like the old uh, African prayer where uh, they used to pray that if the God, uh, uh, be careful what you pray for, because uh, if the gods are mad at you, they'll give it to you. You think it's a wonderful thing, and once you get into it, you realize there are problems with it. But sometimes it just comes, and, and you look at it, and you know this is going to be a long-term adversity. But God Taylor makes these things because he knows just exactly what each of us needs in order to test us in the application of doctrine so that we can grow. You may look across the congregation and you see someone else, and they go through certain kinds of tests. We all know people who go through certain kinds of financial adversity year after year after year. Now, that can be due to a number of reasons. It may be due to the fact that that they are under some kind of divine discipline. Maybe they're just operating in arrogance, and there are certain key principles that they just are violating. But God keeps taking them through that test because God is trying to teach them to deal with that arrogance so that they can move on. And you look across the congregation, you see somebody else, and they maybe have never gone through any kind of financial testing like that. But perhaps they've gone through health testing, or perhaps they have gone through health testing related to a loved one or a child. And one thing that I uh, began to discover as I grew older, I think we all grow up thinking that everybody else is somewhat similar to the way we are, but as you advance in years and get to know people, you realize that by the time you reach the age of 25 or 30, nearly everyone has dealt with some serious uh, difficulties in life to one degree or another. And God tailor makes those in order to teach us dependence upon Him. So when it, we come to the idea of a burden, it is burdensome to us. It is a difficulty or an adversity for us, but it is something that God in His providence has allowed to come into our life specifically for the purpose of training us. It may not have this it may be a situation that wouldn't have the same effect on the next person in line. So let's look briefly at the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence is a function of his sovereignty. It's a function of his sovereignty. So once again what we're looking at is embedded or underlying the rationale of this promise is the idea of the essence of God. It's not right out there um, overt, in, in an overt way. The writer doesn't say God is sovereign. He's sending uh, these things into your life. But it's embedded in the idea of the word burden, that God is in control of these things. It is a gift. So God's providence is a function of his sovereignty. And sovereignty emphasizes God's rule or governance of the course of history. God rules the history of man. He governs the course of history. He's in charge of history. And of course, if God is in charge of the uh, macro developments of history, then God also controls the micro events of history. He controls the details of history. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God controls each and every decision that people make. We'll look at that the relationship of volition in just a minute. But God's providence is a function of his sovereignty, point number one. Point number two, providence emphasizes God's control of the course of history 
which includes both the good and the evil. In God's sovereignty, he permits evil to exist for a time for a particular function. So providence emphasizes God's control of the course of history, which includes good and evil. It includes the adversity that we all face in life. Third, providence means that our lives and the events in our lives are not determined by chance, fate, or luck. As a believer, understanding that there is a sovereign God who controls history, there's no such thing as chance, fate, or luck. It doesn't, isn't something just randomly happened to you, no matter how random it might appear. Providence means that God overrules and overrides everything, and that there is a personal God who is working all things according to his plan. There is a master plan and a master strategy, and God has a plan for your life, and that plan is to conform you to the image and likeness of his Son, and that's character. So God has a plan, and that is to make your character look like Christ, and that means he's got to get out uh, the sandpaper, he has to get the chisel out sometimes, and he has to knock off a lot of rough edges, and he has to use a lot of friction to sand down those those uh, tough points on our character so that we begin to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as chance, fate, or luck. There is a personal God who is in control of every single detail, no matter how difficult it may be. This means, point number four, that providence is therefore related to the character of God. Providence is related to God's essence, who he is. So let's think a minute, focus on some attributes of God to see how providence relates. First of all, we've already mentioned his sovereignty. Under God's sovereignty, we know that God has determined that mankind will be allotted a certain domain of freedom in human history. God rules human history. God controls human history. God works out his ends for his glory in human history, but he doesn't control the details of, of man's thinking and at every level. He has decreed that there will be the function of human volition in human history. But face it, human volition can only do so much. Human volition is limited. There are certain things that you may decide that you want to do and you just can't ever bring it about. You know you can't bring it about. You may wish you could bring it about. But no matter how hard you try or what you do, your IQ is never going to increase from 80 to 150. You are never going to become a world-class musician. And not in this congregation anyway. (laughs) Not, Not unless you're hiding your talent under a barrel. So this isn't going to happen. No matter how much you may want it to happen, it's not going to happen. But there are certain areas in which you have uh, genuine freedom. First of all, we know that every human being is free to exercise positive volition at the point of God consciousness. And positive volition is non-meritorious. There is no merit there. Therefore, God is not saving you because you have had positive volition. Second, we know that man is free to accept or reject God's plan of salvation. That's positive volition or negative volition at the point of gospel hearing. Man is free to accept or reject God's plan of salvation. Third, we know that man is free to be positive or negative after salvation 
in relationship to Bible doctrine. After you're saved, you can decide to make doctrine the number one priority in your life, or you can decide to just kind of slip along and barely get by uh, because you're just too busy. There's too many other things going on in life to be uh, to make doctrine the number one issue. So you have freedom there. You have a choice. And fourth, you are free to apply doctrine or to ignore doctrine. Those areas you have freedom. But you may not have any freedom to determine what happens in your body when you get certain diseases. There may be all kinds of things you may uh, run into in life. You may not have any choice when you go to work for a particular company and that people in that company make bad decisions and the company goes under and goes bankrupt and you lose your job. Or you grow up in an era, this is true for many people in our generation, I think, they grow up in an era when they train for a particular job and then 20 years later technology makes that job obsolete and they're 45 or 50 or 55 years of age and they don't have a a marketable skill anymore because technology has worked them out of the job market. You don't have any choice in those things. Where you do have a choice is how you will apply doctrine when you face those adversities. You have a choice as to whether or not you're going to trust God. You have a choice in many other areas, but there are many areas where we do not have any choice. Many events, many circumstances, and people are outside of the domain of our volition, and they are impossible for us to control. And that gets to the heart of the problem with fear and worry. In fear and worry, we think that somehow by generating all of this agitation and and mental energy, that somehow we're going to affect uh, a solution. We're going to control people or events or circumstances. And you can worry yourself sick, and it doesn't change a thing and won't change a thing. It just may end up making matters worse because you're out of fellowship, you're in carnality, and you're... Uh, losing all of that valuable time when you could be advancing in uh, your spiritual growth. So we have to think about the sovereignty of God in relationship to adversity. Second, we think about the omniscience of God. God knows all the knowable. Therefore, God knows all the potential as well as the actual. Under the first clause, God knows all the knowable, we know that God knows everything that happens in our life, every single detail. He knows all about everything that you worry about. He knows what's going to happen, and he is in control of what is going to happen, and how much you worry about it isn't going to affect uh, those things. God knows all the knowable. Furthermore, God knows all the potential as well as the actual, and as such, God has, as part of his omniscience, he's been able to provide a solution for all of those things. And that solution comes from the integrity of God. The integrity of God focuses on his love, his righteousness, and his justice working together uh, with his absolute truth. So that in God's integrity, God is working out a perfect plan in the life of each and every believer. This whole concept of the sovereignty of God, God's integrity, which also brings in at times his faithfulness, his immutability, is all included in the undergirding rationale of the promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Now, this is another promise that you should 
uh, commit to memory. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you as such that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Now there's a promise, and the promise includes within it a clear statement in the first clause. There is no test. There's no adversity. There's no test of adversity. There's no test of prosperity that happens in your life except that it is common to man. It is one that affects everyone. It may not be exact in every detail, but categorically it is one that is common to humanity. And when we talk about each individual, we know that God specifically is in charge. What is the rationale that undergirds this promise? God is faithful. So right, now, right there we go to the essence of God. The essence of God here applies to both his sovereignty and his immutability. These two relate together. Immutability means God never changes, so he is always faithful. He is always faithful. He controls uh, human history, the details of our lives, so that we will not be tested in a way that, that is beyond our ability, and he is always faithful. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God in his sovereignty is in complete control. You're not going to wake up one morning, run headlong into a massive crisis in your life, say, oops, God fell asleep at the switch, he's lost control, he's fallen off his throne somehow, he missed it, and I'm being hit with this. Just think about it. If you get hit with a massive crisis, that is a vote of confidence from the throne of heaven that you have everything you need to handle it and you can do it. If you don't do it, if you punch the panic button, you throw a temper tantrum, you hit a crisis point, you cave out in the Christian life, and we've all done that at times, so we know exactly what I'm talking about, then it's not because we weren't capable or we didn't have the resources. It's that we ignored the resources and we decided that we just didn't like God's particular plan for our life that particular day, month, or year. But the fact is that God is not going to let us hit an adversity or test beyond what you what we are able. But with the temptation will also make the way to escape. And as I I grind this into you, it's not a way to avoid it. See, it's not a way to escape so you're not there, you don't have it, you don't face it. It's a way to escape that you can endure it. See, God's going to give you the doctrine necessary. God's not going to take you through tests until you have the doctrine necessary. And I don't want to hear anybody say, oh, good, then I'm just not going to go to church and learn any doctrine, then I won't get any tests. That sounds good, but then you're going to get divine discipline, and that's another category. So then you'll really be in trouble. 1 Corinthians 10.13 undergirds this whole concept of testing that God's character overrides what happens in our lives so that we can have confidence that whatever we face, whatever the situation is, God's in control. Therefore, we can relax. We can cast our burden on the Lord. Whatever that situation is, it's been personally designed for us. 
Then the fifth point under the doctrine of providence, fourth point related to the character of God in terms of his sovereignty, omniscience, and integrity. Fifth point, the doctrine of God's providence means that we can relax in the midst of our adversity knowing that God is in control. He has not been taken by surprise, and he has provided for this situation through Bible doctrine. Whatever that situation is, doctrine gives you all the information you need to know to handle that. He has given you promises in his word to claim and to apply. And the result then of slinging our situations on God is that he is going to sustain us. Psalm 55:22, cast your burden or throw your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. See, you have an imperative in the first clause, and then you have the result in the second clause. If you don't cast your burden, then there's no experience of sustenance. The word sustenance there is the pilpal form of the Hebrew verb kul, which means to, spelled K-U-L, and that means to contain something, hold something, abide, bear, or nourish, but in the pilpal stem, it means to sustain or to cause something to endure, to hold it up is the idea of sustenance, to make sure that you are protected even in the midst of that difficulty. Let's look at an example in the Old Testament of God's sustenance in the midst of adversity. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. This is the introduction to Elijah. Elijah just springs on the scene in chapter 17. We have very little introduction to his, to his uh, ministry. It occurs at a time in the history of the northern kingdom when the northern kingdom is at the nadir of its spirituality. Ahab the king is as uh, much a reprobate and reversionist as there is, and he married Jezebel, the granddaughter of Ethbaal, who was the uh, Phoenician high priest of Baal worship. And so he has brought Baal worship into the palace of God's chosen people in the northern kingdom and has led the nation into the worst degenerate perverted form of fertility worship that existed in the ancient world. And as a result of that, God is going to be faithful to his promise to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant, and he is going to begin to take that nation through the various stages of the five cycles of discipline. And as part of that promise, God said that if the nation disobeyed him and went after the idols, the false gods of the other nations, then the ground would dry up, and the, sun, and the sky would become as burnished brass, and there would be no rain. So, to announce this, he, took, he chose Elijah the Tishbite, who was from a small, uh, inconsequential village in the north, and he s- sent him to Ahab the king. So, Elijah is not from the aristocracy. He's not from the upper class. He does not dress so. He just is a working class uh, individual who comes into the presence of the royal Ahab, who loved all the trappings of wealth and aristocracy. 
and Elijah just comes right into his presence. We don't know the exact circumstances, but it could have been when uh, during some sort of procession or when uh, he's having some sort of audience with the people and suddenly Elijah pushes his way into the crowd and announces, As the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be... There shall not be any dew or rain these years. Now, no dew means there would be no humidity. They would not have a problem with mold like we have in Connecticut. They had the opposite problem. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake. I heard, what did I hear this morning? Oh, they had to shut down a, a cafeteria at UConn yesterday that won't be open for about three weeks because of mold. I mean, this state is in serious trouble. It's going to mold away in the next few weeks. But they didn't have that problem. No dew means no humidity. There was no rain these years except at my word. That would come across as arrogance. Elijah says God's not going to allow there to be any moisture at all until I say so. No moisture means that things will dry up. The crops will dry up. There will be no harvest. It will lead to economic collapse. It will lead to personal suffering and hardship. It will lead to the loss of business. And it will lead to a major crisis in the life of the north. So obviously, anyone who made such an announcement to Ahab would become public enemy number one. So it would be time to uh, get out of Dodge, as we say in the West. So they, uh, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in verse 2 and said, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kerith, which flows into the Jordan. So he, God has made provision for Elijah during this time of personal crisis. He is going to be hunted high and low by everyone in the army, everyone in the police force, everyone in the security detail of Ahab. Everyone has been told to find Elijah, capture him alive, so that he can start the reign again. And God takes him and puts him in a uh, hiding place by a particular brook, and then God is going to sustain him. This is the illustration of the pill pal of cool. Verse 4, God says, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook. He's provided for his his uh, moisture needs for water. Now, what's the problem here? Anybody sense a problem? You're going to drink from the brook. Well, what did, what did Elijah just say? It's not going to rain. So you know that this is a temporary situation because a brook needs uh, some source of water eventually unless it's fed from an underground spring, but that wasn't the case here. It shall be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And there's a problem with ravens, because ravens are an unclean animal according to the Mosaic law. But God is saying, I am sovereign, and I am in control of the details of life. And because they were ceremonially unclean doesn't mean that they were uh, it was sinful to touch them or that it was some, they were somehow inherently evil. So the ravens would bring him food, and Elijah's response is the response of the faith rest drill. He went and did according to the word of Yahweh, for he went and stayed by the brook Kerith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 
Now, there's no certainty here. Now, if you were being fed by ravens, that would test your confidence in God because it's, it's right. You can't talk to them. You can't say, well, you're going to be here tomorrow. You got here at 7 o'clock this morning. That's a little early. I'm, not, I'm a late sleeper. I want to have breakfast more around 9 or 9.30. Uh, you can't do that. They're just going to show up whenever they show up, and you have to rest and relax in God. And as he sat there, verse 7, it happened after a while that the brook, and here you have an inceptive form of the verb, the book began, brook began to dry up. So each day he's watching this, and as the drought becomes more and more intense, the brook is going to dry up, and he can see the water line diminish, and he sees it decrease until, he, as he goes down there, he, he gets to that point where he has to dig out into the uh, sand or the clay at the bottom of the brook so that there can be a pool for the water to collect and he can dip it out. And he's thinking, Lord, it's getting dry. Uh, the bank account's getting low. Uh, doesn't seem to be any work on the horizon. How are we going to take care of this? And God took care of him until that last drop of water disappeared. And then the word of the Lord came to him in verse 8 and sent him to Zarephath, which is outside of the land over in Phoenicia, over in the area near the coast. And, of course, in Zarephath there was not a drought because Zarephath in a Gentile land was not under the Mosaic Covenant, so there's no drought there. So he went there and he found a widow. And as the episode unfolds, the widow doesn't have anything. And she just has a little flour and a little oil to make bread and just enough fire to make one more loaf of bread. And Elijah tells her, don't fear. Once again, we come to that problem of worry and anxiety. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. Make a small cake from it first. Bring it to me. In other words, use up the last of what you have for me. I'm a prophet of God. And that says something about her faith that she did it. And she did according to the word of Elijah in verse 15. And yet... Each day there was just enough bread and just enough oil to make enough for that day, and it continued. So God sustains the believer. So we are told, Psalm 55:22, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved or to be shaken. And that has to do with ultimate destruction. Now, it's this same idea is picked up in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, 7. So it's interesting how the Word of God says so much about the problem of fear, worry, and anxiety. 1 Peter 5, 7, we read, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And as soon as we read that, we ought to recognize that we have to learn something about the context. This is a very short verse to remember, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you, and is one that's easy to memorize, but we have to make sure we understand what it means and the context. As we look at that first word ending in an ing in English, we know that it's not a main verb. It's not cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you, although that certainly is uh, true, but that idea of casting as a finite imperative comes from Psalm 55, not from 1 Peter 5, 7. 
The word casting is the root word epiripto and is the same word that the translators of the Septuagint used to translate shalach in uh, Psalm 55.22. So it has that same sense of throwing or casting something upon God, casting all your care upon him. But furthermore, the syntax tells us it's an aorist active participle. It doesn't have an article with it, which tells us it's an adverbial participle of some kind, and it should be an adverbial participle of manner or means. Now that means we have to go to the context of 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 in order to really understand what Peter is getting at when he says, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. There is a context for that promise. And the participle is going to modify the main verb, which we find in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And there we have an aorist active imperative of the Greek verb tapainao. The verb is spelled T-A-P-E-I, tapainao, omicron omega, T-A-P-E-I-N-O-O. And this has the idea of humility, and it has the even more so of the idea of obedience to authority or authority orientation. It is has the idea of dependency. So the command is to humble yourselves. And how do you humble yourself? You humble yourself by casting all your care upon him. Now what this tells us is not casting is arrogance. When you are worried, when you're fearful, when you're anxious, that is a manifestation of arrogance and the lack of humility. And we're told in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. Why? Because there's a quote in verse 5, the previous verse, that God resists the proud. He is antagonistic to the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're worried and you're anxious and you're all tied up in knots over some situation, then you're arrogant. And what is God's relationship to the arrogant? He is antagonistic to the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. So when we claim the promise of verse 7, and we think through the rationale underneath it, first thing that makes itself clear is that this is the attitude of humility, and it is in contrast to arrogance. The second thing that we see here is that the rationale for casting care upon God is because He cares for us. He cares for us. He is concerned about us. This is a function of His love for the believer. He cares for every detail in the life of the believer. Now, the word that is translated um, care here, the arrow's in the wrong place. This is the word for care, is a noun of the Greek word marimna. Merimna, M-E-R-I-M-N-A. The verb form is merimnao, and this relates to worries or anxieties, uh, an over-concern for the details of life. 
And what happens is we become so concerned with the details of life that they become a distraction to our relationship to God and to our spiritual growth. In fact, there are various warnings in Scripture about this. In Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, the third type of, of soil was the soil where the seed is overcome by the thorns. And in Matthew 13:22, Jesus said, He who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. That is, the worries, the concerns, the details, the uh, fears of this life, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. So the word for care there is the word marimna, and that is part of what chokes out uh, doctrine and destroys the spiritual life so that the believer becomes unfruitful. This was a danger in the life of Martha. She was so concerned about taking care of all the household details, it distracted her from the Word of God and the priority of the Word of God. And Jesus warned her in Luke 10:41, Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things. And then he went on to tell her that she needed to be like Mary and put her focus on the important things, which is the Word of God. And then during the last days, it is going to be worry that causes many people to be blind to what's happening during the tribulation and not seeing the signs of the times. And in Luke 21:34, we find this word, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares, that is, the worries of this life, and that day, that is, the day of the Lord, come on you unexpectedly. So worries and fear destroy the spiritual life. Well, we've tied together... Two or three key promises, Ephesians, I mean, Isaiah 41.10, Psalm 55.22, and 1 Peter 5.7. We've looked at how to use a faith rest drill there, and we're going to come back next time and pick up a couple of more promises over the next few weeks to look at how, continue to look at how you use these promises. I want to continue to challenge you to memorize these promises so that you have some ammunition in your arsenal to use when you face the adversities of life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the promises that you have given us, how much you care for us, how you are concerned about every detail in life, how you construct the tests and adversities in our life, to, particularly to train us to apply your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their uh, eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would take this time and opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. But after you become a believer, the most important decision that you face is a decision to grow, to advance, to depend upon God in every area of life. The only way you can do that is to be here, to be studying the Word, to be listening to tapes, to make the study of the Word the highest priority in your life. Failure to do that is the most important negative decision you will ever make in your life and will have damaging eternal consequences. The issue must be decided on a day-to-day basis. Salvation is a one-shot decision, but your spiritual life is a moment-by-moment decision And the most important thing that you can decide is what that ultimate priority is. 
Is it learning the Word, being fortified by the Word, or are you going to be distracted by the cares, the worries, and the details of life? Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.